Let's uh, begin uh, this morning by reading together the passage, and uh, that is from uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. And uh, why don't we stand together as we read this, uh, beginning at, uh, it's in chapter 4, and it begins at verse 8. The end of all things is near. Oh, okay, and then, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things, Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. You know, it could be that... Uh, these uh, verses are even more relevant today, uh, given our situation as a church where our numbers are small, and yet we have big dreams and a realistic vision for the future. But it certainly t takes what uh, this passage is talking about, and that is our serving together. Some of you may have heard this uh, profile of the perfect pastor. And uh, it's something to enjoy, not to take too seriously. But after hundreds of years, the perfect pastor's been found. He's the church elder who will please everyone. He preaches exactly 20 minutes and then sits down. He condemns sin but never steps on anybody's toes. He works from 8 in the morning to 10 at night, doing everything from preaching to sweeping the floor. He's 36 years old and he's been preaching for 40 years. He's tall on the short side, heavy set in a thin sort of way, and handsome. He has eyes of blue or brown to fit the occasion and wears his hair parted in the middle, left side, dark and straight, right side, brown and wavy. He has a burning desire to work with the youth and spends all his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time while keeping a straight face because he has a keen sense of humor that finds him seriously dedicated. He makes 15 calls a day on church members, spends all his time evangelizing non-members, and is always found in his study if he is needed. Goes on to say he burnt himself out and died at the age of 32. <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm reading this for enjoyment. It's not because I complain or that I feel you guys are expecting everything from me or that that has been my experience, <laughs> but uh, something enjoyable to read. <clears throat> but seriously, <laughs> I think we, we should know that there are many 
good pastors and there are no perfect pastors. How is that? <laughs> like two sides of, of one coin. But in my judgment, and, uh, and I say that in my judgment, others may have a different outlook on this, I somehow see that one of the most important functions of a pastor is influencing the others to serve somehow, however you do that. But that uh, it's kind of like you're the captain of the team, if you like. And uh, it's interesting how if you watch the Euler games, they, they give McDavid a lot of credit for that because they see how he sets it up, sets up the, you know, for others to make goals and so on and so forth. And I suggest for, for the sense of clarification here that uh, there's a difference between an excellent hospital chaplain and a good lead pastor of a local congregation. The chaplain would be more into personally providing pastoral care to every individual. And that would be his function. You know, he, he, would, be, he would be loved by all of them, and as they have needs, he'd be there for them. Whereas a lead pastor is more into somehow equipping and influencing and lead the congregation so that together they become a team of service, a team of servants. Because we're all called to serve. It is a togetherness thing as we serve together and serve one another. A few weeks ago I mentioned the different generations and uh, there is one uh, particular generation now that I think uh, this emphasis uh, would resonate with them. And I'm referring, of course, to the millennials, uh, those who were born from 1980 to about 2000. And uh, according to an article that was written in Leadership Magazine, just about the time that the older millennials were becoming uh, young adults, written back in 84, this is what it said. According to Leadership Magazine, they are wired or geared for community. Uh, it says that they think, relate, and live in groups. And sometimes this is referred to as tribalism. Their groups are highly accepting and affirming. They enjoy the sense of coordinated efforts and shared experiences. They think in terms of us as opposed to me. These young adults focus more on what we can accomplish together as opposed to the tension that can arise from turf wars and ego competition. Doesn't that sound like what the church is supposed to be like? I think so. Well, that was written back in 84, and that American too. Uh, Christian Day is the one that uh, did Leadership Magazine. But here, just a couple of years ago, in CTV National News, it was reported about the millennials, just two years ago, that they represent a profound cultural change and that they are into owning less and sharing more. And the example in the newscast was them using a program where they shared cars. I suppose it was sort of like timeshare uh, apartments down in Arizona, whatever. And why can't you do that with cars, too? Because we don't need them all day. <laughs> you know? Interesting. And again, I say it sounds like the ideal church, and may their tribe increase.
Well, as we look at this uh, passage that we uh, just read together, uh, I want to talk about it from the standpoint of the context. That is the uh, sort of what leads up to it. Or if you like, the location where it finds itself. And then secondly, the shared responsibility, which is serving together, and finally, the ultimate goal. And uh, just by way of summary, I want to stress verse, uh, verse 10 again, because it's almost like it summarizes what we're talking about. Verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. But talking about this from the three, uh, uh, you know, the, the frame, the uh, three-point outline that I shared with you, beginning with the context, or if you like, the backdrop. And we sang all about that, but it's verse 8, above all, love each other deeply. That's the context, the location where this is located. <clears throat> it's very significant that in the three major New Testament passages dealing with gifts of service within the congregation, love is always there. One of them is in Ephesians chapter 4, and that's where you find that uh, verse in that section where it says, <coughs> speaking, uh, you know, speaking, what is it, speaking, uh, oh, um, truthing it, okay? And, uh, and then it talks about growing, uh, growing up, and the body builds itself up in love. And, uh, and then, of course, the other section is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, through chapter 14. And right smack in the middle of that section, you have chapter 13, the love chapter. Well, here, same thing. <laughs> because if love is missing, service is not going to work. Serving one another and serving as a team isn't going to work if love is missing. And so here he says in verse 8, above all, love one another deeply, or ESV, earnestly. Uh, keep fervent your love in some of the translation. And uh, that, uh, that word, earnestly or deeply, the root idea is to be stretched or intention. And the ancient Greeks used the word to describe a horse that was stretching out and uh, running at full speed. And so it's like exerting one's powers to their full extent in terms of love, being fully committed, above all, love each other deeply. And when I read this, uh, uh, you know, this description of the term, I was thinking of my nephew many, many years ago, uh, my oldest nephew, Ron. And he was a child, and uh, we were down there. They lived down in the lower mainland, and when we'd go out for... Uh, for a drive, and his dad had some kind of a ranch wagon, and we'd go driving, and every once in a while, Ron would say, floor it, Dad, floor it. You know, he wanted a thrill. He wanted, <laughs> he wanted to see that the car had lots of oomph. And here it's saying that about the way we are to love one another. Love one another with a full commitment, intensity. Make every effort. But why? Why is it so important? And here in this text, it gives a very clear reason. 
Think of your social insurance number, right? We call it the sin number. And that's what he says here. Uh, love one another deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. I mean, think of that. He's talking about body life here. He's not talking here about going out in the world and reaching sinners. He's talking about the dynamic right within the congregation. Even though he's writing to Christians, there is still the reality of sin. And love enables us to cover sins in the sense of forgiving, not demanding payback, but rather patiently bearing with each other in spite of the many perfections. Forgiving quickly, extending grace to one another. Love does that. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. <laughs> what a phrase. Keeps no record of wrongs. Other translation expresses it uh, is not resentful, which of course is what causes resentment when you keep record. Love cuts people slack. Love treats people according to what they need rather than what they deserve. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And then going on into chapter 5, it says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. God dealt with us in grace, and it is only reasonable and to be expected that we treat one another with grace. But someone says, well, isn't grace more for sinners? Those who haven't come to Christ yet? But in the church? I mean, shouldn't we be holding people to very high standards, holding each other accountable to those standards? Yeah, but always with that context of love. Realizing and accepting, accepting that we're flawed people, people still in need of grace. And when correction is needed, it is in the context of a secure love. That's when it'll be most helpful. Just look in the mirror. Look at your neighbor. Look at me. And what do we see? Struggling sinners. Imperfect people. Still in need of grace. <laughs> Somebody's saying, well, speak for yourself, Lloyd. Well, okay. <laughs> but it's true of all of us. And so the call is to be sensitive to one another. Everyone has some regrets. We all have things that we'd rather forget, and we may very well have things we're not quite ready to deal with yet because we are all a project in process. Above all, love one another deeply. It's the only way that we can have harmony. It's the only way we can even demonstrate 
the kind of love that God has for us. And it's the only way we can be a refuge for others, a safe place for other sinners to join our community, experiencing grace whatever their past, giving them a new start. Frankly, I think it's encouraging, and I think it's wonderful that God uses flawed people like us to do his work. So I want to say here today, and and there might be someone here who really needs this encouragement, don't be paralyzed by an awareness of your imperfections or guilt about your past, but serve and use your gifts. We're talking here about serving one another, and it can only happen well where there is love. Serving, using your gifts. But there's something else related to that, and that is it raises the level of love amongst us. We serve one another faithfully and then serve in love. It raises the level of love. And I like this definition, or I've used it before, not definition, but purpose of the church. Richard Niebuhr defined the purpose of the church like this, the increase of the love of God and neighbor. Sounds like the great commandment. And the gospel is so that we can live the great commandment, the purpose of the church, the increase of the love of God and neighbor. And you see, what I'm talking about here should have the outcome of raising the level of love. And what a goal to take with us to Ambleside, that our presence there will increase the love level in the area. But in the meantime, we love one another. We serve one another here in this place. The context is love. Well, love, of course, is active, and that brings to the second point, the shared responsibility. Each of you should use whatever gift you receive to serve others. And then he begins, he gives a list of, and I I take this list to be for instances. You know, if you were to sit down with Peter and interview him, he'd probably come up with many other examples, okay? But here he lists some. And he he lists, first of all, hospitality. Uh, And the word literally means love of stranger. You see, in the setting of the early church, uh, literal hospitality, that is having people into your house, was a virtual necessity because there was a great deal of coming and going with the journeys of apostles and evangelists and the uh, dispatching of letters. And uh, they didn't have a network of hotels like we do today. But in such a close-knit community, it it was natural that visitors would be given hospitality in homes. And uh, not only was it that reality about traveling missionaries and evangelists and so on, but also for the first 200 years of Christianity, there were no church buildings. So the church was compelled to meet in houses of those who had bigger rooms. Church was literally dependent on the hospitality of its members. Peter's realistic here, he says, uh, you know, to to one another, and then he says with, it's a two-way street, but he says without grumbling. It's not always easy. It can be exasperating, but God is saying here, do it cheerfully, otherwise it isn't going to be very worthwhile for anybody. 
But I realize there are time periods in our life, and perhaps especially many of us as we get older, that we can't offer it regularly anymore in our homes. Uh, But that's not the only venue. And usually people today, that isn't so much what they need as much as they need to share life, right, with one another. And, uh, you know, people may not need the literal hospitality of being in your house and eating your food and staying in your, you know, sleeping in one of your beds. That may not be needed today. But people, perhaps more than ever, need the love that says, I want to share something of my life with you. And that would be the practical way of doing hospitality today in one way or not. The other is wonderful, and do it if, if, you know, if you can, of course. But also this sharing of life. However, you know, let's do coffee together. And if you guys are tea drinkers, that's okay too. But I'm Scandinavian, and uh, it has to be coffee, right? No, just kidding. But I like coffee. Let's do breakfast together. Or I really like hockey. How about you? Let's go to, let's go to a, a game together. Or I really want to see this particular movie coming down the pike. Anybody want to see it with me? Or let's pack a picnic lunch and eat together at some park. You know, probably not this month, but maybe, <laughs> maybe in a couple of months. Start planning. Put it on your calendar. <laughs> But that would be a form of hospitality. And imagine what that can mean to a newcomer who visits the church. And you've got two or three people saying, hey, would you want to do coffee with me this week? Or you want to, you know, do this or that with me this week? You see, there, there the literal meaning of the word comes into play. Love of stranger. Hospitality commutes communicates a message. I'm interested in you. I desire to share something of my life with you. And, uh, and of course, it is as we share life's experiences together that we build relationships and we experience and we build community. Shared responsibility. Well, he says, as each of you, each of you, The assumption here is that everyone has a gift for serving. Not pastors only, not leaders only, but each has something to contribute. Christians are so gifted in one way or another. And uh, this is Peter writing, and it fits perfectly with the way Paul writes when he uses the uh, metaphor or the analogy of the human physical body and applies it to what we call the body of Christ. Many different parts, many different parts playing different functions, and yet all are essential. Team, every member has a function. Practically, how do you find out what your gifts are? Well, it would be much like you discover natural talents. You try various things, and then you evaluate on the basis of the experience. But some things to expect. If you have a gift in an area, you'll probably find special meaning in doing it. Certainly that's my experience. Makes you feel alive again. And also you'll find where where there's a gift, there's a certain amount of effectiveness, assuming that you had a chance to do some practicing and training for it. 
And, uh, you know, effectiveness. If your gift is administration, things are better organized. If, uh, if your gift is teaching, people learn. There's something, something clear about your presentation so that people can understand. Uh, if your gift is leadership, people tend to follow your direction. But also in discovering what you're especially good at, it's important to get you know, feedback from others too because it can be your own imagination that says that I really, uh, you know, I really want this or I really think I'm good at this. Uh, there are a lot of questions about spiritual gifts. You know, are they still for today? Are they all listed? How do they relate to our talents? How do they relate to our learned abilities, our experiences? And uh, a lot of things we don't know. I don't know anyway. But my concern is not to have a tight definition or an answer to those questions, but rather that we emphasize our strengths. Use those things that God has wired you so that you're especially good at it. Especially use those for healthy body life. And that could also include ministering out of life's experiences. You have something special to bring. If you've gone through a divorce, you have something special to contribute. If you've survived cancer, if you've survived addictions, tragedy, sorrow, all of those things are things that put you in a place where you might be able to help someone else more than if you hadn't had those experiences. All of those things. Strengths. Look for strengths. Peter says, as good stewards. Good stewards. Uh, it's the idea that uh, you're not an owner of what you have to offer, but you're a manager. It's Think of it this way, your particular gift or the strength that you have and that you can offer, think of it, it's a little bit like God's investment fund. And he wants dividends from his fund. And the dividend comes as you, as it says here, serve one another, serve one another. You know, you guys are survivors and so probably you're into this, uh, what is it, 2080 thing where, uh, what is it, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And I think some of you are exactly in that category. You're doing 80% already. So please take it that way to be encouraged, not to be scolded because you guys are already helping a lot. But the point here is that every one of us can help at something. And here, here's another coin with two sides. The one side is this. Everyone can be helpful at something. The other one is that no one should expect to be strong in every area. Right? It's true of pastors, too. A good friend of mine that first met in uh, 1968, and he was, has come to know me very well. He was in our church for a while, and now he's been, uh, for a long time, he was a pr prominent in our denomination. But one, on one occasion, he introduced me uh, to one of his friends at, at their home church. And as soon as he said my name, he said, uh, good so-and-so, but a lousy administrator. Lloyd Alston, good preacher, he said, terrible administrator. And I know, it, I know for sure he was right about the second one. I hope that to some extent it's true of the first one. But he didn't mind recognizing or even expressing it. That I'm not good at administration. Ask Leah. She's wonderful at that, by the way. <laughs> You know, when you're an administrator, things get better organized. And if you're not good at this, 
no, it's, it, it's a very missing, it's very obvious when that link is missing. Working on your strength as a steward. I am grateful as I look back that I've had a lot of freedom to minister out of my strengths. I tried to really work on my strength and churches gave me a lot of freedom and I appreciate that. Here's a little fable, and again, this is for enjoyment, but it makes a point. <clears throat> a group of animals decided to improve their general welfare by starting a school. The curriculum included swimming, running, climbing, and flying. The duck, an excellent swimmer, was deficient in other areas, so he majored in climbing, running, and flying much to the detriment of his swimming. The rabbit, a superior runner, was forced to spend so much of his time in other classes that he soon lost much of his famed speed. The squirrel, who had been rated A as a climber, dropped to a C because his instructor spent hours trying to teach him to swim and fly. <laughs> and the eagle was disciplined for soaring to the treetop when he had been told to learn how to climb, even though flying was the most natural for him. Yeah, we need to use the special abilities that God has given us. The ministry of the church is a team effort. All are needed and all are different, and each has a different service to contribute. There's a practical sequence here that we don't want to miss. When members minister to one another, as it says here, and I should point out here that in this passage, the focus is internal, how we operate as a congregation. That's, the, that's what that passage is about. But when we do that, the congregation becomes healthier and stronger. And uh, the love level increases. And when the church is strong, and the love level is high, the light becomes brighter, the salt becomes tastier. And so then we're able to leave a larger footprint on the world around us. You know, there are many efforts at doing so much out there without having the act together at home. And then there are others again who can't get past having their act together at home and they don't seem to ever get beyond that. Somehow we need both. But it really does have to come from within. And as you're strong at home, you can do more away from home. We're all called to serve. Out of love, it's a shared responsibility. Finally, the ultimate goal. Peter says, in order that in everything, in order that in everything, God might be glorified or praised in order that in everything. How do I practice the glory of God? We hear a lot about that. Well, I'd say first we simply acknowledge that that's what life is about and we're aware of that. And then we try to line up with that. Very important to remember that this world, my life, my family, my church, and all that there is it's not about my happiness. It's not even about my survival. But first and foremost, it is about God's glory. 
and everything else comes under that. And then when our lives, both of my own life and our life together, reflect more and more of his character, as he sang about his love this morning, <clears throat> that is reflected. He is glorified because his qualities, his character qualities are being demonstrated in the way that he lived. But in conclusion here, I note that in this context, it's especially about people glorifying him. Began the service this morning by reading from Psalm 19, how it says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The whole cosmos and everything on our planet contributes, declares, demonstrates God's glory. Here especially, it's about how we serve people, how we serve one another, how we're in love. And Peter is saying, in order that, do all of this so that God might be glorified. We all want our lives to count. We all want to leave a good legacy, but what could be better than to invest ourselves in others? And when we do, everybody wins. Church is strengthened. I am blessed by being a blessing, and God is glorified. The Westminster Shorter Catechism applies to every church in every time and place where it says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let's stand together. And why don't we, why don't we say these well-known words and uh, take, take, take them with us in our minds, in our memory, together. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Lord, we pray that you will be glorified in and through us, out of our praise and adoration, and out of the way that we love, serve, and build up one another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.